This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. In this episode, a conversation I had in the early 2000s with John Ronson. He's well known now as a broadcaster on Radio 4 and a podcaster. When I met him first, he was relatively unknown. He'd just written a book called Them, Adventures with Extremists. And uh, the title came from a conversation he had with John Diamond. John Diamond was a great journalist, um, a very attractive personality. He was married to Nigella Lawson, and all was going well till he got cancer. And latterly, he couldn't talk, which was why he was communicating with John Ronson by notes. Anyway, John Ronson, his book was called adventures with extremists and what interested me was he allowed the extremists to self-define yeah uh, I, I thought that was important because i discovered quite early on in the research of the book that i was going to be taking the piss out of the people who did the labeling um and so i didn't want to be doing the labeling myself because my my thesis or one of my many fascinating theses um was that um the people who do the labelling, people who say he's an extremist, she's an extremist, can often be quite just as crazy as the people who they're, who they're demonising. And I knew the book was going to be looking at those people too. So that's why I didn't want to do the labelling myself. Okay, in fact the title came from the late great John Diamond. Yeah, yeah, I was playing poker with him. I'd just been, I'd just infiltrated a secret society in Northern California where Henry Kissinger um, attends an owl-burning ritual where men dress up in robes and hoods and burn effigies at the foot of a giant stone owl. So naturally I was thinking, well, maybe the conspiracy theorists are onto something. So I came back to London and played poker with my secret Jewish cabal of, of uh, journalists, um, including John Diamond. And I said to him, look, you know, you won't believe this. Henry Kissinger dresses in robes and burns effigies at the foot of a giant stone owl, and I think the extremists are onto something. And John Diamond just got out his notepad um, and wrote down, you know, you're sounding like one of them. And, and it kind of shocked me at the time because he was genuinely, you know, angry about it. I mean, one of the things that John um, did getting towards his death was that, you know, he didn't stand on ceremony. He didn't sort of, you know, he didn't, he didn't beat around the bush. Um, and so he just told me sort of up front, you know, what, are you going to put that in your book, you know? Um, you sound like one of them. And so the next day I was going off for cigarettes and um, and I was thinking about one, what John said and suddenly the word then popped into my head as the perfect title for the book because the yeah. title refers not only to the extremists, they're them but also the extremists look at us as them, we're just as, just as kind of appalling to them as they are to us. Plus there's this third them in the book which is this yeah, I'm just mystical making a program, cabal actually, so it's not of, of um, all powerful international bankers and so on who are reputed by the extremists to be the secret rulers of the world and part of the narrative of the book is is to try and track down and infiltrate these secret societies how much of your life did you spend doing this about five years i'd say i did do other stuff in in the middle i should i should add i mean i, I wasn't just crazy i had crazy months months with crazies and then I'd come back to London and kind of be a dad so it's like on the Friday I'd be at Aryan Nations and on the Saturday I'd be at Legoland you know. but, um, I love the fact um, that you, here you are a young Jewish journalist with attitude being accepted with people who probably hate 
everybody who's young Jewish and particularly journalists. Sure, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a time, there's a moment in the book, and it's a kind of slightly sort of overlooked chapter, which is a shame because I think it's quite a good chapter, um, set in Hollywood, when I'm with this film director called Tony Kay, who's making a, an anti-Nazi movie. He's also Jewish, and we're in the back of a limousine, and the number plate of the limousine is J-E-W-1-S-H and it's got like seven telephone lines in the back of this limo and we're cruising down Sunset Boulevard both out to kind of take the piss out of Nazis and extremists and I suddenly realised, you know, this is the secret room me and Tony in the back of this limousine, you know, this is us, we are the conspiracy But there's another time when you are looking after the funds of the Islamic fundamentalists who presumably want to kill everybody like you and they leave you, I don't know, I've got a mental picture of you kind of standing on a corner looking after their their collection which they've made in um, sort of big plastic Coke bottles or something. Yeah, they they wanted to collect for Hamas and, and Hezbollah. Uh, but the only collection boxes they could find at the Cash and Carry were huge novelty Coca-Cola bottles, um, which is uh, obviously ironic. Um, but, um, yeah, but eventually, after about a year of being with these people, these five collection boxes were full, um, and they were sitting in the car, and Omar and Anjem, who were the two leaders of this Islamic group, Al-Muhad Jaroun, uh, forgot their coats, so they had to go back inside the, the, the offices to get their coats, and they left me in charge of, you know... These Coca-Cola bottles. So of course I decided, you no, know, I have to, I have to take them. You know, I have to do this. This isn't funny anymore. You know, I have to reach in, grab the Coca-Cola bottles, and make a run for it. You know. But you didn't, did you? No, of course not. <laughs> you know, I'm mad. You know, I just stood there. And um, but my, the one thing in my defence is that um, they were very heavy. They were full of change. You know, I would have got about ten yards at the most. <laughs> uh, Omar. You, you, you first make reference to him. He's standing in Trafalgar Square, mm. um, berating the world, and you, you call him up, and he says, "Oh, I'm ever so nice, really. Yeah. I'm ever so nice." <laughs> and I imagine this big fat bloke, because he says leaders have got to be fat, mm. uh, and you go around his place. Yeah, and he's watching the Lion King. And where's his oh, wife, dear. the mother of his daughter? Well, she's upstairs um, because she won't come down. Um, she won't let me. I, I was with Omar for a year. I was his chauffeur for about six months. Um, and never once did I meet his wife because um, Omar said if I, if I put his wife in the book he'd declare fatwa on me and then he said I'm just kidding but, yeah, but still you don't say <laughs> no but it, he, he just wondered quite how much he's kidding yeah well it's, Omar's definitely an, an enigma because if you read some things about him they say he's Britain's most dangerous Islamic fundamentalist he's the man you know he's Osama bin Laden's man in London um, he, he pushes the buttons but then you read other reports and they say the opposite, he's just a comical figure and I was with Omar for a year I probably knew Omar better than any Jewish journalist um, and I didn't really get to the bottom of it I, as to how, in, in terms of how dangerous Omar is, I mean he certainly has the, has the convictions and of course, you know these days you can begin to understand what he's railing against when you see what's happening in Israel. You know, times have actually changed a little bit, even since I wrote the book, which is only a year ago, a few months ago. But here's a man, yeah, OK, he's got convictions and you can understand some of them, but he won't go into Soho. He won't let you drive him into Soho because there's naked women on every corner. Yes. <laughs> and the spy, And if he bumps into the Spice Girls, he will have them arrested immediately. You know, 
There is a certain dippiness about some of this. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It is. It feels a bit like a Carry On movie. That that chapter, which I quite like, you know, Carry On Jihad. Um, But 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 you show great um, implacability of spirit because these guys go off for a robed weekend, and you kind of tag along and sort of show up. (laughs) I mean, showing great neck if not courage well I'm not I'm not a brave person at all and there's certain times in the book you know where I'm being chased by unknown forces through Portugal or when I'm at this secret terrorist meeting in Birmingham or at a jihad training camp or at Aryan Nations where you know where I'm really you know clearly out of my depth and not enjoying it you know I, I'm not a I'm not one of those adrenaline junkie types who used to hang around the you know holiday in Sarajevo at all, I just sort of felt I had to do it for the, you know, had to do it. This is where the narrative was taking me. The problem is, if you're if you're a slave to narrative like like I am, if you you know if you have to follow the story through, um, there's nothing you can do if you suddenly find yourself you know surrounded by neo Nazis or, you know, in the car park of a secret terrorist meeting. Yeah, some of this is serious, and some of it is just it strikes you as bizarre. David Icke. Mm. I mean, the world. Is being ruled by transgenic lizards, including. I once had to interview Boxcar Willie. Now, what do you did you see him shapeshift? No, I didn't. <laughs> and you, I remember the biggest neurosis I had about interviewing Boxcar Willie is what do you call him? Mm. You know, Box. Well, yeah, you call him Box. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he, he didn't ever strike me as being a lizard. Now, why did David Ike? Take this guy and mix him in with oh, I can't remember Al Gore. Yes, I don't know. It's a simple answer. I don't know why he chose Boxcar Willie. I also don't know why he chose um, Chris Christopherson, um, which I found particularly offensive because me and Bobby McGee is my favourite all-time song. So I was kind of particularly upset that he was being maligned as a lizard by David Icke. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. To tell you the truth, um, David explained it to me once, but he does ramble. Um, and I'd lost the drift. Yeah, um, David Icke was a half-decent sports presenter, wasn't he? Then he went on to Wogan and declared himself to be the son of God. Um, And I remember laughter, and he... And Wogan said to him, didn't he, they're laughing at you, not with you. Mm. I'll tell you my theory about that Wogan moment, is that, sure, the audience were laughing, but... I think when you watch a videotape of that now, you begin to think to yourself, okay, the audience are laughing, but a little bit of them are thinking, well, you know, what if he actually is the Son of God? You know, what if, what if the Isle of Wight is about to be destroyed by cataclysmic... That's waves? right, yes, he, he, pr- he promised we were going to have all of these cataclysmic um, waves and mm. water, didn't we? I think a lot of people believed him, and I think, as I say in the book, I think the nation looked to Terry Wogan for guidance at that point, you know. How should we? What should we feel about David Icke? The nation was thinking, and that's when Terry Wogan said, "They're laughing at you. They're not laughing with you." And that was, and it was okay again. Terry Wogan defined how we should feel about David Icke. But I, I remember watching that and thinking, "This is cruel because this man has got a mental illness, and it's cruel to send him uh, to, to let him sit there up for ridicule, even if he wants to do it. It is still cruel." You'd think, I, you know, if, if you wanted to analyse what David Icke's mind state was like at the time, I think, you know, he was suffering from very serious arthritis. I wouldn't, personally, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a, it was a nervous breakdown, which he actually probably recovered from 
quite soon afterwards. But then, you know, if you believe they're 15 feet lizards, aren't they? Between 12 and 15 feet. I mean, he's quite precise about this. Yeah, they come from Anunnaki. Yeah. In the lower fourth dimension. He, he kind of, you saw some cave drawings of lizards descending from the sky and put two and two together. Um, and, um, see, what I found funny, I mean, I can't fathom whether David Icke really does, you know, they, uh, another conspiracy theorist said to me that David Icke was, was a turd in the punch bowl, that basically, you know, he talks about the Bilderberg Group, he talks about the global elite, he talks about the Bank of England, about the Federal Reserve, all these things which are easily demonstrable. And then David Icke goes and blows it by saying, by the way, they're all 12-foot lizards. And it's really upset all the other conspiracy theorists because David Icke's getting all the attention because of the lizards. Um, and, of course, he thinks that David Icke will then discredit all other conspiracy researchers, which, by and large, he does. Um, so that's interesting to me. But the, but the thing that was most interesting to me about the David Icke saga was the responses towards him. Um, first, firstly, you had Wogan's response towards him, but, but now you've got this coalition of Jewish groups and fellow travellers, anti-racist groups, who all believe that David Icke's using code word, and when he says lizards, what he actually means is Jews. Um, but don't you th conclude that actually when he says lizards, he means... I think if you had to put money on it, I think he means lizards. That's John Ronson talking to me 23 years ago about his book, Them. Adventures with Extremists. It's still available, and it's available as an audible book as well. I remember it as being jaw-dropping, and I'm sure it still is. This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman.